Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Spring Meadows Adult Sunday School. Glad you could all make it on this windy Sunday morning. We're continuing our study on the attributes of God. Today we'll be looking at goodness, mercy, and love. First, a little review. Our previous five lessons have focused on God's incommunicable attributes, that is, God's transcendent otherness from us. So incommunicable attributes are those attributes that God does not share with his creation in any way. So, so far in our study, we've looked at God's attributes of aseity, simplicity, eternity and omnipresence, immutability, and last week we looked at impassibility. And, you know, I'd like to recommend if you haven't had a chance to attend or listen to any of the previous lessons, it would be very helpful as we move forward because we're kind of like it's a, we're building a wall and it's, it's good to know what bricks were placed so that I don't have to teach the same concept over and over and over. So anyway, let's open with prayer. Our Father, we ask for your help this morning as we continue to look at your self-revelation in Scripture regarding who you are and what you are, that we would come away from this teaching this morning in awe of your majesty and your love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So now we're transitioning to the communicable attributes, and this is number one on your handout. God's communicable attributes, I've spelled it for you up here, are those in some degree, which in some degree may be reflected in man. No Christian has these attributes in an absolute sense. Nevertheless, they possess some degree of that characteristic which will be enhanced at the return of Jesus Christ. And today we're starting with what are known as the moral attributes of God, and we'll begin with the attributes of goodness, mercy, and love. And this is number two in your handout. So while it is true that God in one sense loves the whole world and that he sustains the world and offered salvation for any who will believe, nevertheless, he does not love all men in the same way. So we will discuss three ways that God's love manifests itself. The first is goodness. Goodness is, divine goodness is the overflowing bounty by which, of God by which he, he who receives nothing and lacks nothing communicates blessings to his creation and to his creatures. God's goodness is the opposite of harshness and cruelty. So to experience divine goodness is to enjoy the sweetness friendliness, benevolence, and generosity of God. Mercy is another way of looking at God's love. That's God's mercy is God's goodness to those who deserve only punishment. It's essentially synonymous with God's special providence or grace, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we go on. And lastly, love. God's love is his eternal giving of himself to his covenant people, his covenant people. So let's start with goodness. When Moses longed to see God's glory and asked God to show him his glory, God said in Exodus 33, 18-19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. J.I. Packer says, within God's moral perfections, and that's what we're studying here. I mean, that's what these attributes are, they're perfections. 
within God's moral perfections, there is one in particular to which the term goodness points. The quality which God specially singled out from the whole when proclaiming all his goodness to Moses. And this is the quality of generosity. Generosity means a disposition to give to others in a way which has no mercenary motive. There's no quid pro quo. It's not limited by what the recipients deserve, but consistently goes beyond it. Generosity expresses the simple wish that others should have what they need to make them happy. Generosity is, so to speak, the focal point of God's moral perfection. It is the quality which determines how all God's other perfections are, are to be displayed. So here, generosity is the manifestation of God's goodness. All that comes from God, his decrees, his creation, his laws, his providences cannot be other than good. As we see in Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. This is number three in your handout. God is good not because he obeys some cosmic law, cosmic law outside of himself that judges him. God's goodness is neither arbitrary nor capricious. Get a vocabulary lesson in this lesson, <laughs> my teaching too. God does obey a law, but the law he obeys is the law of his own character. He always acts according to his own nature, which is eternally, immutably, and intrinsically good. This is number four in your handout. God didn't just create the universe and let it go as the deists. Deists are people who believe in God, but they just believe he created it and tossed it out there. And Rather, God preserves, nourishes, and cares for his creation. This is known as God's providence. And as Tim told us in a sermon a couple weeks ago, the meaning of the word providence comes from Latin. Pro, which means before, and video, which means to see. So providence is to see in advance or beforehand or to provide for, to provide for. The central point of the doctrine is prov of providence is the stress on God's good government of the universe. He rules his creation with absolute sovereignty. He governs everything that comes to pass from the greatest to the least. So God is immutably good. James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And this is number five on your handout. God's goodness refers both to his character, his essence, his being, ad intra. Okay? We're putting focus, I, I want you to make that part of your Trinitarian grammar. Ad intra means not looking at creation, God within himself. Uh, where am I? And his behavior, how he interacts with creation, ad extra. Okay, so ad extra is outs external, outside of the Trinity, toward creation. Psalm 1968 says that God is good, Okay, ad intra, and does good, ad extra. His actions proceed from and flow out of his being. He acts according to what he is. God is good all the time. And since God is immutable, he ne never varies in the intensity of his goodness and kindness. He's never been kinder than he is now, 
nor will he ever be less kind. He is no respecter of persons, but makes his sun to shine on the evil as well as on the good, and sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. The cause of his goodness is in himself, and the recipients of his goodness are all beneficiaries without deserving it. Acts 14.17 says, Yet he did not leave himself without witness. So what we see is witnessing God's goodness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So when Christian theology says that God is good, it's not the same as saying that he's righteous or holy, you know, like he's a good boy. <clears throat> this is number six on your handout. The goodness of God is that which causes him to be kind, generous, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward all men. God's goodness is also known as God's common grace or general providence, and that it is displayed to all in the creation, preservation, and blessings of this life, and is given regardless of the recipient's awareness or acceptance of it. It's called common grace because its benefits are experienced by or intended for the whole human race without distinction. It's grace because it's undeserved and sovereignly bestowed by God. In that sense, it's distinguished from the understanding of special or saving grace or um, special providence, which extends only to the elect, those people whom God has chosen to redeem. We're going to talk a little more about election in a minute. So the goodness of God is seen in the variety of natural pleasures which he's provided for his creatures. God might have been pleased to satisfy our hunger without food being delicious and tasty to our palates, or our lives could have been sustained without beautiful flowers and colors that are pleasing to our eyes, or he may have not given us singing or music that's pleasing to our ears. And this is number seven on your handout. Whatever it is that brings joy, joy to your heart comes from God's goodness. The only reason God ever gives us anything to laugh at, to smile at, or enjoy is because he is a good and loving God. Now some folks mistakenly equate the goodness of God with the rightness of their circumstances. Like the person who when she gets what she wanted exclaims, God must really like me. Or conversely, when things aren't going her way, says, why is God punishing me like this? So to our eyes, our circumstances are not always an accurate reflection of God's goodness. Whether life seems good or bad, God's goodness, which is rooted in his character, is the same. Nothing comes from God except good, and nothing except good comes from God. Psalm 145.9 says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Louis Burkhoff says, The goodness of God curbs the destructive power of sin, maintains in a measure the moral order of the universe, thus making an orderly life possible. It distributes in varying degrees gifts and talents among men, promotes the development of science and art, and showers untold blessings upon the children of men. So we must take this truth of God's goodness one more step. God allows nothing to happen to the Christian which is not good, 
And we all know this passage well, Romans 8, 28, which says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this doesn't really mean that evil is good in disguise. It means that the way of the gospel is to bring life out of death and good out of evil. Things that happen to us may indeed be evil, so we've we got to be careful not to call good evil or evil good because we do encounter affliction, misery, injustice, and a bunch of other evils. Yet God in his goodness transcends all of these things and works them to our good. For the Christian, ultimately, the providence of God works all these evils for our, fi final, benef our final benefit. And we're going to look more into that as we go deeper into God's communicable attributes. All things that happen fulfill God's purposes. How the mechanics of it work, it's never explained. This is one of those secret things which belongs to God. And I don't know what God is doing in your life with your suffering. And I don't know all that God means to do in our world with this global pandemic, for example. But we know that whatever comes into the life of a Christian is part of God's purpose to bring about our good and his glory. We're specifically going to talk about that more in Lesson 11. Well, someone might naturally ask, well, how can God be good if he sends anyone to hell? So God's goodness is an attribute that must not be emphasized against other attributes like his justice and his holiness. The lost in hell cannot complain that God was never good to them during this life, they were surrounded by God's goodness, just like all other creatures. So even they should confess that God has been good to them far more they, than they deserve. So what should be our response to God's goodness? First, praise. I mean, when something brings joy to your heart, you need to thank God for it, okay? Psalm 145, 6-8 says, Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Another response is that it should make our hearts tender toward our fellow creatures just as God is toward us. It should make us patient and trusting. Uh, Lamentations 3.25 says, The Lord is good unto those who wait for him. Or should make us thankful. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, says Psalm 107, verse 1. And as we meditate on the goodness of God, it should stir us to worship. Psalm 34, 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Any questions so far? Everybody with me so far? This is pretty easy stuff. Good. We're going to get into some tough stuff next. So, next, God is merciful or mercy. So first, let's define mercy in the context in which I'm teaching it, and this is number eight on your handout. Mercy is the concept of God's special providence in regard to salvation. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. If you deserve to be punished for something and that punishment is averted or turned away, then you have been shown mercy. So what's the opposite of mercy? Justice. 
Christians receive mercy because Christ served the complete sentence of, ju of just wrath that they deserved. This is the mercy of the cross, the sinless one serving the sentence of the sinner. Ephesians 2, 4-5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Oh, there's another word, grace. So what is grace? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. So grace is kind of the other side of the, the mercy coin, as it were. And to understand the difference between the grace and mercy of God, it helps to look at God's dealings with the unfallen elect angels in 1 Timothy 5.21. These elect angels were objects of God's free and sovereign grace because of his election of them. But they had no need of mercy since they had never sinned. Okay? They required no justice. By the way, they don't, have a, they don't have a redeemer, a substitute that we do. So those who did sin don't get mercy. Those who were elect got grace, had no need of mercy since they had, hadn't sinned. They required no justice. Therefore, no mercy. They got what they didn't deserve, grace. So this is number nine on your handout. Mercy is that attribute of God in relation to human guilt where forgiveness is given to those that deserve punishment. God is not obligated to give mercy because by definition, mercy cannot be obligatory. If you say God owes everyone mercy, you're not thinking about mercy anymore. Justice, however, can be obligatory and is something we have all earned. If God saves anyone, it is purely an act of his mercy. All Christians should agree that it would have been just of God to wipe out all mankind in judgment. So why then would it be unjust for him to judge some and have mercy on the rest, as some people often ask? Well, thankfully the Bible has an answer for that. Romans 9.18 says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he desires. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So the elect are vessels of mercy. The decree, the plan and fulfillment of God's election provides a mercy for the elect. And we must face the fact that if God chooses to save some and not all of Adam's fallen children, then God must also deal with those whom he has passed by or not chosen. Those are called the reprobate. Okay, You have the elect and reprobate. Maybe a new word to you. This is number 10 on your handout. God shows mercy sovereignly and unconditionally to some, the elect, and gives justice to those passed over in election, the reprobate, R-E-P-R-O-B-A-T-E. No one is the victim of injustice. To fail to receive mercy is not to be treated unjustly. 
and this is number 11 on your handout, reprobation, like election, is a decree. <coughs> it's a decree, D-E-C-R-E-E. -E. Election is a decree, reprobation is a decree of God ad intra. In the Reformed view, God from all eternity decrees some to election. You can see that in Ephesians 1.5. And he positively intervenes in their life, ad extra. You can see that in Acts 13.48. To work regeneration and faith by monergistic. Monergistic means one energy. It's God's energy, okay? As opposed to synergy, which, for example, our fellow Christian Arminians believe that they cooperate. It's two energies, my energy and God's. Reformed people say no. It's monergism. So it's, it's a monergistic work of mercy and grace. So to the reprobate, God withholds this monergistic work of mercy and grace, passing them by and leaving them to themselves. You can read about that in Romans 1.24. God does not monergistically work sin or unbelief in their lives. Do you see the asymmetry here? He works monergistically in the elect to regenerate us. He, he is the one who works that in our lives. For the reprobate, he just leaves them in their fallen state. Okay? Any questions on that? Man, I was almost afraid to teach this to you. I know it's not fair. That's the big opposition a lot of people have. And I'll tell you what my reaction was the first time I learned this from Pastor Tim around 1992 when he was teaching a leadership training class. And I came home from that class and told my wife, man, I think we're in a cult. Because <laughs> I had never heard this stuff before. You know, I'd been going to church for 20 years at that point. But my hardest problem was not unfairness to others, but why me? I couldn't... I just thought, man, the only way I'm getting in is if there's, you know, he mistakes me for another Mark Anderson, because there's a million Mark Andersons, you know. Or, or if there was a, you know, a mistake someplace, because I just couldn't see. And I'll tell you, it, it's on every page of the Bible. It just startled me, okay? So we shouldn't be surprised to discover that the doctrine of divine reprobation is rarely mentioned today in the vast majority of evangelical churches because, quite frankly, it's not user-friendly or, or seeker-sensitive. I mean, the last thing you want to do is go up to someone and say, are you elect or reprobate? Okay, it's, it's not the way to do it. So, does God's mercy mean that justice has not been satisfied? Is mercy, this is from uh, an old Monty Python skit, you know, it's a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know what I mean? No. This is number 12 on your handout. God's mercy is not a matter of God forgetting or ignoring our sin. He gets full satisfaction, but upon a substitute, upon Christ, who was the propitiation, the atonement for our sin. God could only give mercy once his justice was satisfied. First um, Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, 
He has caused us to be monergistically, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it is pure sovereign grace which alone determines the exercise of divine mercy. It's not the beauty of the creature which causes him to show mercy since God is not influenced by other things outside of himself as we are. It's not in his nature or purpose to do so. We learned that in the doctrine of aseity. Okay? He's, not inf- he's self-contained. He doesn't need anything outside himself. He's not up there waiting to see, well, let's see who's going to pick me so I can pick them. Okay? Um, Titus 3.5 says, Not by the work of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved it. Now, listen very closely to this. Nor is it the merits of Christ which moves God to bestow mercies on the elect. That would be putting the effect before the cause. It is through or because of God's tender mercy that Christ was sent here to his people, okay? The cause is God's tender mercy, his love for us. So if we trust in what Christ has done on the cross, then the full and eternal mercy of God is manifested to us. We escape the judgment of damnation and are able to spend eternity in Christ's awesome presence. And this is the greatest act of mercy anyone could experience, and it's found only in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, any questions about mercy? See none, let's move on to love. Mercy is what you get as a result of God's love. God is love, but love is just one aspect of God's divine being. His essence, as we learned when we looked at the doctrine of divine simplicity, shows that God is made up of whatever God is made up of. So we're looking at attributes as just a human way of having a perspective, okay? So we learned that God has no parts or attributes that can be superior in conflict with all of his other attributes. So we must be careful not to collapse God into a single attribute, nor can we pit one attribute against any other, as though God is at war with himself. His love is an immutable love, an eternal love, a holy love, an omnipotent love, an impassable love. And this is number 13 on your handout. The concept of God's impassable love, and that's I-M-P-A-S-S-I-B-L-E, the concept of God's impassable love helps us to understand the love of God negatively. In other words, what is the love of God not? It is never a response to his creation at their worthiness. Okay? Um, we love because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19 says. And since God is simple when we study the doctrine of simplicity and not composed of various parts, we know that he does not merely do loving things, but he is love in his very essence. Is it impossible for God to be or do anything that is in conflict with love? So there's various ways the Bible speaks about the love of God, and the first way is God's intra-Trinitarian love, and we've often referred to that as perichoresis means the dance around, okay, between the, the uh, mutual indwelling of the persons of the Trinity. And there was never a time when Trinitarian love was not. 
The dance never stopped, not even at the incarnation or at the cross. And God's love is also displayed in his providential care for his creation, general providence. And we just looked at that in God's goodness. And third, God's special love is directed toward the elect, special providence. And the elect of God are those whom God has predestined to salvation. As Ephesians 1.5 says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will. So God is love, says 1 John 4.8, but does God love everyone in the same manner? Let's read that whole passage. 1 John 4, 7 to 11 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, the Apostle Paul, or John, wrote that God is love, and some have taken his words to be a definitive statement concerning the essential attribute and nature of God. R.C. Sproul doubts that there is another attribute of God more fraught with the peril of idolatry than love. It is the attribute, he says, most often selected at our theological smorgasbord. He said, you can safely finish the idolater sentence when he begins, well, my God is a God of, well, it's love every time, says R.C. Have you ever heard anyone say when we tell them to repent on belief in the Lord Jesus? Well, I'm repulsed by your God that forgives the repentant. My God is a God of raging, irrational fury. Nope. Everybody loves love. And the love of God in our culture has been purged of anything the culture finds uncomfortable. The love of God has been sanitized, democratized, and above all, sentimentalized. Nowadays, if you tell people that God loves them, they're unlikely to be surprised. Well, of course God loves me. He's like that, isn't he? Besides, why shouldn't he love me? And it doesn't help that the church often portrays God as a sort of divine therapist who's ultimately about our needs and whims and feelings rather than his own glory and goodness. So, although people seem to have little difficulty believing in the love of God, they have far more difficulty believing in the holiness of God or the wrath of God. You know, they like to quote John 3, 16. For God gave the, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But they don't often include the last part of the verse. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So if the love of God is exclusively portrayed as an inviting, yearning, secret sinning, lovesick passion, then the cost to God's glory and transcendence is huge because the love of God is not some sentimental notion. It is a love that is demonstrable and manifested particularly in the cross. Listen to what John Owen said. This is number 15 in your handout. 
Christ's offering himself was the greatest expression of God's inexpressible love. To fancy that there is any cleansing from sin but by the blood of Christ is to overthrow the gospel. The gospel. We are never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in holy amazement at his unspeakable love. God does not compromise his holy nature by passing over sins, but in love has put forth his own son as a propitiation, as a payment for our sin. So we need to be careful not to compartmentalize God's love and separate it from his other attributes. And we must be careful not to evangelize by appealing only to the love of God. Okay? Um, The unrepentant sinner should not be comforted by assurances of the love of God apart from Christ, but should be reminded that God hates sin. And this is number 16 on your handout. If we try to rescue the love of God by diminishing the holiness and wrath of God, we'll end up diminishing the very love we were trying to rescue. The cross demonstrates the love of God, not because it speaks to our great worth, but because in electing grace, it turns away God's just wrath. We will never be able to understand the love of God until we grasp the significance of God's holy hatred against sin. The death of God's Son is the only adequate gauge of what God thinks of our sin. The cross is the triumph of both love and justice. To mirror what we said in mercy, God does not love people because Christ died for them. Christ died for them because God loved them. And God's love is not like our love. God's love does not change ever under any circumstances. And this is number 17 on your handout. Having loved us from eternity, the elect, he will never call back his love in time. There is nothing we can do to destroy or even lessen the love of God for us. We did nothing to compel God to love us, and we can do nothing to repel God's love. The love of God is not dependent upon or regulated by our faithfulness to him. Our faithfulness to him. And indeed, there is a mystery in God's electing love. Why he chooses one or another is not revealed. We are only told that it is not due to any merit or human distinctive. For example, Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8 says, in regards to Israel, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because... The Lord loves you. That's it. Because the Lord loves you. Mr. Adam. This is number 18 on your handout. The love God has for the world is a redemptive love. Redemptive. And the objects of God's love are the elect. It is the love enjoyed by Jacob, but not Esau as we see in Malachi 1-2. God does not fall in love with the elect He sets his affection, his perfect love on us. He doesn't predestine us out of some whimsy. Rather, in love, he predestines us to be adopted as his sons. We can look at Ephesians 1, 4 to 5, which says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
ad intra, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption is sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So, and again, we, we can't look at our circumstances for assurances of God's love. Not only would that lead us to believe that God loves some more than the others, and we might often say, gosh, it looks like he loves the wicked more than the righteous. But it also undermines our faith, okay? And there are usually two common occasions when committed Christians tend to doubt God's love. The most common, maybe it's not, it's just... For me, it is. The most common is when we are, for whatever reason, deeply aware of our sinfulness. Perhaps it's some persistent sin pattern in our lives. And at such times, we have a tendency to think, how could God possibly love someone as sinful as me? And the second occasion that tempts us to doubt God's love is in times of adversity. We might think, man, if God really loved me, he wouldn't allow this to happen to me. But 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And this is number 19 on your handout. When you are tempted to question God's love either because of your sin or your difficult circumstances, look at the cross and remind yourself that on the cross, God proved his love to you beyond all doubt. You know, and it's kind of like when I was learning to play baseball. My dad always said, keep your eye on the ball, keep your eye on the ball. You know, if we keep our eyes on the cross, um, we'll just have a better perspective and not think God doesn't love me. Um, so how do we know God loves us? Because Jesus died for us on the cross. Romans 5, 8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, you know, and I really, I, I remember one day just sitting down and reading that, and I go, what? He loved me when I was, man, you gotta, if you meditate on that for a while, it'll blow you away. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So through his sacrifice, sin is paid for, and God's wrath against us came to an end. God's love is not seen today in our satisfaction in this life, but yesterday in God's satisfaction in his Son. God loves us as we are, not as we should be, and that's why we need Jesus. And God's love won't slowly increase as become, we become more like the person we should be since his love is infinite he cannot love us more, and he will, he will never love us less. And this is number 20 on your handout in the end of this lesson. The eternality and immutability of God's love to us in Christ means that our everlasting salvation is a matter of absolute certainty. As Paul says in Romans 8:39, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And a few sentences later, he answers his own question with a ringing affirmation that nothing, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And never doubt it, but we always do. That's the end of the lesson. Any questions? Whew.
I was a really good teacher today. <laughs> uh, where's Keith when I need him? <laughs> All right, let's close in prayer. Father, as we contemplate your love for us, help us to keep our eyes on the cross as proof that you love us. Would you bless us now as we come to worship you? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.